This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast, where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. This is Emma of Motive Partners, and today we are joined by a very special guest and one of our own, in fact, Christine Suriani, Motive Industry Partner and the CEO of Financics, which is also Motive Partners' portfolio company. Welcome to the show, Christine. That's wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's so lovely to have you on the show. We're going to dig into your career in a second, so I won't give too much away in my introduction, but it is a privilege to have you with us. And I'm excited to learn about you and your thoughts and perspectives on the industry through an investor lens in your role at Motive Partners, but also more recently, as of February 2019, when we invested in Fanatics, through an operator lens in your role as CEO. It's really quite a unique combination, and you are a great example of what the Motive team set out to achieve at the outset. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So to get started, I always like to give our listeners context. And so I'd like to start with you before we dig into your career. Can you tell us who is Christine Suriani? (laughs) And what makes Christine tick? It's interesting. I I always love to surprise individuals when they see my name and then meet me in person and they see the name Christine Suriani and they expect potentially an Italian living in Switzerland and they see a Chinese American walk in the door. So I'm a Chinese American born and raised in California, grew up in a family of immigrants and started my career at JP Morgan in New York in both investment banking and private banking. And my life took me to Geneva, to Hong Kong, to Singapore, to London, where I had the opportunity to work both with excellent colleagues at JP Morgan, but then later on in consultancy as well. And more recently, as you've heard from Motive Partners and Fanantics. But in terms of life, you know, I call Switzerland home. I have two sons, 12 and 14, who also call Switzerland their home, married to a Swiss half Italian, and really, you know, have grown up in financial markets over the last 25 years, both with a hat of being an entrepreneur and now a fintech leader. What a colorful career you have had. And I'd love to ask from me as a woman, what have been the biggest breaks that you have had along your career? You're a mum, but you're also incredibly successful in what you do. Can you walk through your career from that perspective too? Yes, I love to tell people that my career was planned and I had the foresight to make all the right decisions which led to where I am now. And in reality, one thing wasn't common. I followed my instinct to work with people who I respected, who share the same values and who I felt were working on topics which really motivated and inspired me. And that's what attracted me to JP Morgan. I actually studied economics and accounting at Claremont McKenna in California and really fell upon JP Morgan as a career counselor I was attracted to them both because of international breadth at the time it was pre-Chase, but really the people that I met who really focused not only on having, you know, first-class business in a first-class way, but putting people in diversity first. And I had really the pleasure of working in a context with a company that really valued that and gave a lot of empowerment, I have to say, to young employees from the early days. I've always been surprised at how much we were able to achieve with such a small team at that time. 
I then decided to leave and get an MBA at Berkeley, focus on entrepreneurship during the dot-com boom and bust. Really wanted to go back to my hometown in California and combine financial markets with what was the growth of the dot-com industry and really the growth of entrepreneurship when Google and Facebook and LinkedIn was being launched. I was one of the first 100 users of LinkedIn. Wow. (laughs) It was started in the campus when I was there. I actually fell into consultancy at the time after the dot-com boom and bust, my now husband couldn't come to the U.S. And I met a consulting company called MA Partners of 20 people. They were looking to expand and looking for individuals who came from financial markets, but really wanted the passion to also grow. And with them, grew the company to 150 people. We sold the company to a company called Dedica. Dedica at the time was very government focused, but used technology and their PhDs to really focus on combining the best of you know, market manipulation, market tracking, market traceability and AML with consultancy. Dedica also then sold to BAE Systems, and I had the opportunity to join Capco, which was really at the time quite early days. And Capco at the time really focused on capital markets, was really pleased to join a really inspirational team that wants to combine both deep domain experience and consultancy to bring management consultancy. And again, a focus on both transformation and technology delivery to global players. And with Capco, help build Switzerland, help build Asia and open up Singapore and a number of the offices, built the wealth management practice. And I think, again, followed individuals who really shared, again, the same values and the same vision. Fortunately, had the opportunity to also follow that at Motive Partners. So we're Rob Havart, founder and managing partner at Motive Partners. And really, again, I have to say, I'm always surprised about the talent that comes together, but really the vision about taking deep industry experience combined with operational experience combined with capital and the ability to bring that together and drive growth in the right way. And we've seen that be successful with the Motive Partners model, as you rightly say, combining individuals who've been there and done that in some ways, but with a very diverse background and combining those who've built both fintech services companies, financial institutions, and not only identifying the challenges and the opportunities of growth, but also being able to not provide a template-based view, really looking at every opportunity as an opportunity and helping companies grow using experience and the overall network as well. And that led me to Fanantix. So Fanantix, I've had the pleasure of knowing for over 10 years. I worked with them very closely in my previous firm. And I was always very attracted to Fanantix. Fanantix very focused on digitalizing front office wealth management and using technology and data to really increase sales, client engagement, and intelligent collaboration. And meaning Fanantix, I think they were at a phase where they were also looking to grow and looking for capital to achieve that growth. I'm really pleased they decided to select Motive Partners to help them on that journey. And that allowed me to join them on, as a board member in February of last year. That's where we are today. <laughs> Here yeah, we are today. Board member and CEO of Fanantix. I'd like to go a little deeper into the motive model, as you said, just to shed light for our listeners to give context on how you can really have these two hats and two perspectives and just dig a little deeper into the industry partner model, specifically at Motive Partners, because it is really quite unique. Can you tell us a bit more about your role as an industry partner and how gaining this perspective as an investor 
as well as an operator has helped shape your thinking in your role today? So I think as an industry partner, one, being involved and looking at the trends of wealth management, wealth management's going. And I think if we look at our wider industry advisor network as well, we've been able to really look across the spectrum to understand where the drivers, both in open banking and digitalization and product complexity and, and product selection, and also in core banking and, and operational efficiencies. And I think Motive, if you look at the overall portfolio wealth management, we have a very rich portfolio now in wealth management with the first investment in Avalok, most recently with Tegra 118 as well, and Fanantix at the end of last year. And a very complementary, I would say, portfolio of companies across the reg tech, you know, cap tech, cap market space. In wealth management, the combination of understanding where the market is going globally, but also the understanding of how to take companies at different phases through their value creation is probably the biggest differentiation of motive partners compared to other companies. And why is that? Because you can do a market study, you can look at industry trends, but until you understand how a company works from inside out and what are the individual differences in terms of a company's maturity that will take a company from A to B. Until that, you know, it's really about walking hand in hand with the individuals and making and, and exactly. the companies and helping them through that journey because it isn't about taking that one decision after you've done the value creation plan, after you've done the initial investment. It's really about how does motive and how does the overall you know, advisor community help adapt, shift, shape, and continue to coach and guide the portfolio companies during its evolution? And as the market shifts with COVID and the situation we've had overall, nobody can have predicted the overall situation. So it's really about that ongoing partnership and that ongoing advice. And ability to adapt and, and, and pivot. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I'm sure you see that day-to-day -day in your role at Fanantics and really driving the entire bus there. Can you tell us a bit more about Fanantics and particularly for our listeners, what exactly is it that you do? And I guess a good way of asking this question would be, what problems do you solve? What problems does Fanantics solve for its clients? So Fanantics is a technology company through and through with a platform that really helps banks, wealth managers, insurers, wealth insurers use technology and data to increase sales effectiveness, front office productivity, and really create a high-touch personalized experience for clients. A good example, if you look at some of that intelligent collaboration and some of that ability to support banks and intelligent collaboration, is combining the ability to provide data-led pipeline management, data-led prospecting with a full 360 client view to help relationship managers identify cross-selling opportunities, aggregate alerts and notifications from various applications, help them with their servicing requirements and needs, and then injecting, if you wish, an ability to provide recommendations at scale. A couple of items which is quite different, I say about Fanantics is from day one, the company was really architected to be an API first, highly configurable platform, which can fit into the overall ecosystem. Fanantics has always been built to really enable the front end and digitalize the front end, but also plug and play and to interact with and to give full flexibility to banks to choose to use Fanatics to accelerate certain user journeys and user stories, 
and also leverage other fintechs or internal platform to do the rest. So if you wish, companies, for example, you know, HSBC, which you know, have been using Fintechs to enable their front-end client yes. and we're really pleased that they can actually mix and match Fintechs in their internal environment. So they can use Avalok on the core banking, they use Aladdin for their risk engine, they use Appway for onboarding. And that combination, that ability to work with Fintechs across the front-end ecosystem for us, is a real differentiator as well. And this is what makes actually Fnatic very future-proof as we look to a much more open ecosystem environment as well. Yes, and I couldn't agree more. And on reading up before our chat today, I came across the snippet from one of the news articles released on the announcement of your CEO-ship at Fnatic. And I'd actually like to quote it today as I thought it gave a good picture of what you have already achieved in the short time at Fnatic, but also what you're working to achieve. So it said... Since her appointment, Christine has been a driving force behind Fnatic's evolution, focusing on talent acquisition, commercial strategy, and market positioning. She has overseen the expansion of the firm's geographic footprint in core markets across Europe and Asia, Pacific, opening new offices in Switzerland, Japan, and Australia. And she has played a key role in the recent acquisition of InCube, an AI and data science-based solution provider out of Zurich. You mentioned a bit of this, but I thought that just gave the full, colorful, incredibly busy, packed few months that you have had (laughs) at Fanantics. And my first reaction was just, wow. So in this context, as the new CEO, what are your plans for the business? How has it been and where are you looking to take the business forward? Yeah, so it may surprise you. I think as my first order of business was actually focused on people. And it's interesting because, again, as a technology company, individuals will say, well, aren't you first focused on the technology and the technology strategy and the technology platform? Actually, as a technology company, Fanatics has built an institutional enterprise-grade next-gen digital platform. And it has been architected to be really future-proof in terms of being API first. So actually, it's not about the technology. It's really about scaling customer-centric products. It's about working with the teams to provide autonomy and measured risk-taking and being able to bring that customer voice all the way through the organization. So really working very closely with the teams to focus on our people and making sure that we can not only create a high-touch personal experience for our clients, but for our our team members as well. In terms of long-term vision, it really is to be the leading digital front-end platform for wealth managers and wealth insurers and, and banks. And again, for us to really enable a wide ecosystem thanks to our flexible architecture. So we do want to focus continually on driving efficiency, being that value aggregator, and really using our domain knowledge to address the pain points and address them very quickly. A lot of our clients who talk to us, they say, look, they chose Fanantics because we can really accelerate delivery. It's very rare we don't have a client already live within four to six months on a very specific use case and a very specific journey, whether it be client portal, whether it be robo-advice, whether it be digital investment proposal. And that speed of delivery, especially for tier one organizations that have different needs, different architectures, but want to have and leverage one common platform that is multi-tenancy, that is multi-jurisdiction, that can be extended across locations, that's really our strength. And that for us, it is combining not only what we consider a digital experience with the business logic and the engines that will allow for compliance and regulatory compliance, but also that focuses on all the little added value areas that increase productivity, that think about the, again, ability to, you know, 
audit call reports and to automate the execution of digitalized content. So one area, particularly after COVID, was sharing advice and sharing investment advice. I think the parts of the process that are very manual were really highlighted during the high volume period um, right after yes. market changes. And yes. you still see in the end in wealth management, many processes are still very manual. Client servicing is still based on, in some ways, outdated documents or outdated risk profiling and investment proposals are still shared to clients via the PDF and an email. They're not actionable. They're not drilled down. They're not tailored. You know, they're compliant, but they don't have the best customer experience. And so Fanatics really leverages the, the technology to make that communication of clients from the advice to sharing clients fully digital, right? We digitalize investment proposal. We share that with our clients and they can drill down and they can share that via chat or via browser. The client can decide what decision they want to take and then they can execute that from the digital proposal. And those, they may seem very trivial, right? But it's all about improving the client engagement. It's all about improving scale and efficiency. Yes, I guess going back to your point, it all goes down to people and delivering to the client, to the customer, what do they need? How can we make it quicker and more convenient for them? I was fascinated to hear that you say how manual the industry is, and I guess that maps out the opportunity for Fanantics. But why do you think it is still so manual and and archaic in a way? What is preventing institutions from adapting quicker? Why are we still in this archaic world? Interestingly, I mean, wealth management over the last 10 years, if you look at the major trends, on one hand, wealth has continued to grow. If you look at the last BCG report, it just shows that wealth continues to soar over the last two decades, even in light of the many economic disruptions that occurred over the period. But what happened in parallel, I think a lot of the wealth managers had to invest in regulation and compliance, refinement and business models, which are really driven by cost and complexity of compliance. It was just too costly to serve all markets, all segments in the same way, and without a scalable technology platform. So the investment originally, I would say, was on consolidating and simplifying a lot of the back end over the last 10 years. And then the investment in the front office, attracting new customers, retaining existing customers, providing tele-advice, was really focused on very specific pain points. So banks either addressed a very specific area, whether it be client e-banking or MIFID or AML or KYC. And what was left was a somewhat disjointed customer journey because it meant that as banks were implementing point solutions or focusing on the various pain points, the relationship manager in the end had to migrate from one solution to the other. And banks haven't really considered the full end-to-end journey. What is it like to actually take those, you know, the investments to the client? How can they take that, that information to clients at scale instead of emailing their clients? And how can they educate the clients better in a way that also gives the clients the ability to do that at their own time and to drill down in the information that they want to drill down. I think that banking has been a highly trust, highly customized service, and therefore applying technology was really focused on the areas that can drive scale compliance. But we're seeing now that ability to really use technology, not only, I would say, to address certain areas which would still assist with compliance because you can't actually comply with all the regulation anymore without using technology. It's just too complicated. But really, again, helping that client engagement and servicing in a much more efficient way. 
You mentioned Incube earlier on. We were really attracted by Incube, deep focus on data science, deep focus on natural language processing and machine learning and injecting AI where it can add real value. It's important for optimization. It's an automating what used to be Excel-based advice, taking house rules and sharing that across the, the bank, across the, the portfolio managers. It's using machine learning for equity and product selection, but it's also using their capacity and their capability on other pain points. I think clients who work with them find that suddenly actually the client data quality may not be very effective. So how can they use their RPA technology to clean up client data. And then once they do that, how can they use their NLP to help with KYC? And after they do that, how can they actually use some of their analytics to look at customer churn, customer behavior, and cross-selling opportunities? So I think what you're also seeing is, is that you can use technology and data to really, again, automate and to enhance a customer journey, but it can also be used really as analytical tools as well to give more insight, more value to the RMs and the portfolio managers to take better decisions. And they can do that at scale only if they have technology to help them with that. Most of the guests on this podcast read our newsletter every week. So we thought you'd enjoy it too. It's called Brain Food. It comes out every Sunday morning and it's packed with all the things you need to know about financial services and technology. You can subscribe at motivepartners.com. You mentioned trust there and you said that private wealth is a trust-based business. How do you balance that with technology and convenience and more automated experience? It's interesting. There is the Intamin's trust barometer that's done every year and it shows that financial markets tend to actually go down on the trust factor. But actually where trust is high is where they feel that if you look at traditional banking, where they feel that technology has helped areas like payments or mobile banking, where they can see the information and they have the transparency. That combination of using technology to ensure that a client feels that a relationship manager is scanning the universe of products available for them, filtering it based on their preferences, if they want to have sustainable products, if they prefer certain investment types and investment vehicles, and really tailoring the investment to their current situation and their current wealth. But doing that both at scale, but doing that in a personalized manner. And to do that 100% manually, I think clients are also feeling that's just not possible, right? So I think trust still in wealth management is about being able to explain and take decisions with a client around their current situation. So there is an element of communication and dialogue, but providing transparency, providing information rapidly, providing contextual information, that yes. technology can really enable very quickly. And I remember talking to a portfolio manager who said, you know, just after the, the huge market shifts, you know, again, after COVID, that they are spending until the end of the day, almost 11 p.m., taking the advice of the bank, identifying what the house view was on the overall equity markets, and then applying it to the client portfolio, and then emailing the clients individually with what that meant. If they were able to get an alert automatically saying, we've looked yes. at your situation, we've looked at the, the huge market moves, and we believe that this is what your, our recommendation is because of your situation, and we can do it immediately on, again, devices and different channels, that is relevant, it's timely, it is transparent, and it still puts the decision in the hands of the client, right? It's not mass mail spamming either, right? It, is, yeah. it needs to be filtered, it needs to be relevant, it needs to be timely. And to do that without technology and data, I think is yeah. more possible. I couldn't agree more. And I guess as 
you get more and more data on each individual. The more the individual feels like I'm in good hands here, they know what I want, they know what I need, and I'm happy with, with them having all my data. It helps build the relationship in a way. I think clients are definitely looking for banks and particularly in difficult situations, right? COVID puts a magnifying glass on what's inefficient and which banks differentiate because of their ability to collaborate, reach out and commit to clients. Most of the surveys done during crisis situations with clients show that it isn't actual portfolio performance, which a client then rates a bank for. It's their ability for their investment counselor to get in touch with them explain the situation and react, communicate, collaborate, and to have the client feel that they are being treated with the white glove treatment that you expect. I think clients don't worry about sharing data per se in that, but more importantly, more and more, I think they're trusting the ability of technology to help provide much richer investment advice really tailored to them. And going forward over the next five years, how do you think technology will impact the industry? What will the biggest changes be in wealth management? Again, we talk about where AI can really add value in in compliance and KYC, as well as in advice, as well as in identifying client opportunities and client cross-selling opportunities, but also research and product opportunities. I think if you also look at technology in terms of servicing, the ability for clients to self-serve servicing items. And RMs actually have a almost cockpit one-stop shop dashboard where they know what's happening with their clients. What's interesting is I think many banks have realized that the model back in the day of a relationship manager being the only touch point with a client is long gone. Clients bank with banks because they want to be able to access the wealth managers, the tax specialists, the investment counselors, the bankers, as well as potentially the trustees and other elements of the bank. So being able to provide that holistic advice, but also opening that the client is something which, again, technology can help with. At the moment, that ability right now is is quite one-on-one. We look at using our technology, for example, you know, with our new digital collaboration hub, Financics has lounges that we invite our clients into, which is a secure environment where you can invite different individuals in the relationship to discuss the situation with the client and bring a lot more of the strength of a financial institution to a client as well. That works even better for those who are clients, for example, who worked with an investment bank to sell their company, <laughs> to do that transition and communicate with the private bank, right? Where actually you have different touch points and different relations and the ability to, again, use technology, especially now where a lot of that collaboration is remote, but also to open again the wider part of the bank to the client as well. And do you think these trends are completely being accelerated during the current crisis that we face? So again, I think COVID has just highlighted areas that probably have had been weaker and therefore banks that were manual and banks that weren't ready to work remotely, I think that highlighted the need to actually invest in digital collaboration tools, whether it be chat, whether it be video, whether it be document sharing and the ability for client advisor to collaborate remotely. But also, again, because volume and trading went up as well, it put a lot of pressure on our banks using technology to help with all of the compliance and detection of opportunities as well. Everything from ensuring that the advice is is suitable, but also automatic detection of opportunities. ESG has come up being a 
big trend specifically, not only after COVID, but also after the entire movement and with younger generation also managing a lot more wealth. So that section of, you know, ESG relevant attributes and conduct and opportunities to invest or disinvest in investment vehicles where a client doesn't feel anymore that the investment is not only providing them financial gain, but actually personal and life gain as well. So, so the ability to really use, again, data to provide those opportunities, I think that's what COVID, but also the overall macroeconomic environment has highlighted. You mentioned the social impact trend that is coming about. It's a softer topic and it's a great segue into asking you a, a few things about you and the softer mm-hmm. questions. Yeah. This is a question I have actually been wanting to ask you as someone who was relatively early in my career. I'd love to know what you wish you were told before starting your career and what advice would you give to your younger self? First, identify your own leadership style and identify your core values because you'll be the best leader if you play on your strengths and surround yourself with individuals who in one way are actually better than you and challenge you and hold you to a mirror and tell you the truth, but also who share your values. They don't need to share the same ideas, and it's better, in fact, if they have diverse ideas. So I think it's really identifying what, what culture and values you want to live by and live in, and you know, identify that as your leadership style and then live towards it. There is a you know old school nursery you know story, I think, about the oak tree and the reed, when to be flexible and when to be you know the oak tree. And I think yes. your values is the oak tree. And then as the world shifts, you need to be adaptable and flexible as well, but don't be flexible in your values. (laughs) You want to be the oak tree. And if it's respect, if it's diversity, if it's empowerment, choose that and, and live to it. And I think that actually, you know, I've always embraced diversity, but diversity is actually something which is very deliberate. Managing teams who come from different backgrounds is actually more challenging and making a conscious decision to work with individuals who come from different backgrounds who may not on the face of it look like they fit the exact mold is exactly that diversity that interesting enough I think is what motive has and the proof is that over 40% of the CEOs in fund one are women but also individuals that come from different walks of life and it's that combination that really brings the best environment because you know you want to be in an open enough environment you can challenge each other and learn from each other but also really that respects and fosters so you know focus on who you want to be with surround yourself and build an ecosystem of role models and hire teams that are better than you thank you for that you mentioned role models there and that's actually something that we always love asking mm-hmm. our guests and i'd love to know who some of your biggest role models have been in your career Oh gosh, the difficult question I have to say because um, yes. there's so many and I have to always consider, you know, who I can think of. I mean, I've been really fortunate again working in environments that really embraced diversity and allowed me to have a voice and allowed me to develop in my own style. In terms of role models, I'm mean, fortunate enough to have role models in different areas of my life. There are those who've been very close to me from a work perspective. I have to call up Rob Havert, who's been a real role model in terms of his vision and always reminding everyone to look at the world with a beginner's mind and don't ever filter based on your experience. Look at everything like as if you have a beginner's mind. And I think he always reminded us as well of the overall vision. But again, that culture and value at the end of the day was really important. I think he always said that culture is strategy for breakfast. 
I think also I look at a lot of the fintech leaders, and I actually do think there are more and more fintech leaders who are women as well, but also who embrace diversity and who embrace, you know, leaning in. And, and I think that is really important as you look at how individuals can continue to lead and still stay true themselves. Steve Jobs said, great things in a person are never done by one person, right? They're done by a team of people. Yes. I love that quote. Um, it's absolutely true. Surround yourself with a team and make sure you are carried up and out with your team. I always considered it my role to foster and protect and you know build and to shape the teams I've worked with. So the good thing is, is that role models never, never, never stop. They never, never end. Yeah. And they come from all different walks of life. And I must say, Christine, there are many that hold you as their role model too. And especially for me at the start of my journey at Motive and also as a woman, I can just say I'm very lucky that we work together because hopefully I can look forward to many more conversations like these in the future. And I know you're an incredibly busy person. What are the tricks and daily habits that you have adopted into your life that have contributed most to your success and enable you to operate at your best? I think it's really important to ensure that you create mental and physical breaks throughout the day to give you an opportunity to reflect, reset, and refocus. I think it's Warren Buffett who taught Bill Gates the importance of an empty diary to schedule time to dream. Um, I definitely try to start the day in the morning with my yoga and finish the day with a brisk walk to signal the end of the day, especially now during lockdown. But I also make sure I put the phone away during family time and given I make my kids do it, I can't be a hypocrite there and schedule those times to dream. Wow. So I I was just writing that down. And if I can reflect on on my notes, I have always try and keep an empty diary to schedule time to dream and also your values. Your values are the oak tree. I've taken so many snippets from this and lifelong lessons. So thank you, Christine. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motor partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.